welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy, and it's my pleasure to welcome as our guest for this podcast, Dr. Rocky Twan. Dr. Twan is Director of the Center for Cellular and Molecular Engineering in the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at the University of Pittsburgh. And Dr. Twan is also the Executive Vice Chairman for Orthopedic Research at the University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Twan, welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. It's a pleasure to be here, John. So, Dr. Tuan, you're one of the pioneers in the area of orthopedic research, and certainly this is an important area relative to many types of diseases and afflictions. Uh, perhaps we could begin by just giving us a bit of an overview of the focus areas of your research. I think one of the pressing diseases in our society right now is related to the areas of orthopedics, specifically diseases that affect the joint and weight-bearing areas of the body. And examples would be osteoarthritis, low back pain, trauma to joints as a result of accidents or sports, overuse, all those things really affect our quality of life. And uh, of course, uh, as a result, you have pain and discomfort and uh, inability to move. All those things really uh, cause, first of all, a lot of discomfort, as well as, in fact, long-term economic consequences, an inability to work and to have a good quality of life and so forth and so on. So I think there's a great need for us in the biomedical research area to come up with therapeutic solutions to deal with such diseases. So in my own work, we are very actively involved in trying to come up with therapeutic and regenerative approaches to treat, for example, degenerative joint diseases, low back pain, as well as diseases that relate to the damage to ligaments and tendons that affect joint functions. So that's our, uh, our focus. So is the science the same that you might apply to peripheral joints as it is to the back, or, are they, or is it different? There are obviously similarities. Joints are complex tissues, actually. It's made of, obviously, two pieces of bone coming together, but obviously you cannot have bone on bone, so there are multiple other softer tissues that stay in the middle between the two bones that allow that joint to articulate or to move. So in that regard, the extremities, like the limbs, those joints, as well as the joints in your back, uh, in your spine, share some common properties. However, as you can imagine, your back is just this one single column that has to uh, support the bulk of the body. So the mechanics are a little different. However, there are a lot of similarities as well. Again, the tissues in the joint will include bone, cartilage, tendon, ligament, as well as the capsule of the joint. So we've had many scientists and physicians on this podcast in in previous sessions that have talked about soft tissue engineering, and there seems to be a lot of progress in that regard. I have the impression that in terms of cartilage and bone tissue engineering, while progress is being made, the technology is not quite as mature. Is that a fair assessment? It's a fair assessment, but on the other hand, you know, everything is kind of half full, half empty. We are certainly approaching that that tie mark, if you want to call it that way. The key uh, challenge right now is that it is not good enough to just simply say, well, I got a pothole on my joint surface, and I'm going to find the material to fill that pothole. 
Well, just as my analogy suggests, the material that you use to fill the pothole is only one part of that equation. Making sure that that material stays in that pothole and continues to function and integrate well with the remaining of the road surface is very important. And that, in fact, is the challenge. I think we can make very good pothole material right now. And the material is uh, derived from cells, from polymers that can be either synthetic or native polymers from isolated from tissues, and as well as bioactive factors that can stimulate the formation of that tissue, or in this case, that pothole material. But the challenge right now, and this is the most exciting part of, of the research, is really to find a way to make sure that material will integrate well and then continue to function after you place it into that lesion or that defect site. So is the objective to form new bone in this pothole or to put some type of replacement material in the pothole? The approach is probably even more complex than that. So one way you can think about this, uh, and again, I think this analogy is a good one, in that obviously the material that you use to fill this pothole ought to be quite similar to the existing material of the road surface, but cannot be the same, because if it's exactly the same, then it will fall apart very quickly also. So what you want is new and improved material. That's number one. How do you do that? is, again, something that my laboratory, uh, as well as a few in the country, are spending a lot of time doing right now. The second thing is then to make sure that what we make is going to stay that way. Oftentimes, when we make tissues de novo, meaning new, somewhere else, particularly outside the body, we can turn the machine on, but having it stop at a specific point and be functional at that point is the challenge. So what we are trying to do is, first of all, find the right type of cells that will help us continue to fabricate and manufacture this tissue, but to accelerate this process initially using uh, very smart materials. And I use the term smart just like people use it for smartphones these days. A material that not only just receives signals from you, but actually sends you signals and educates you and instructs you to proceed to the right place. So this smart material together with the cells and then with preferably a very tunable type of delivery system for bioactive factors. By that I mean that the surgeon the scientist, the engineer, as well as the patient himself or herself, based on the patient's biological activity, can control the delivery and the activity level of these bioactive factors. So that at the end, it will be as close to perfect as possible new tissue. Now, for a new piece of new tissue to sit there and integrate with an old tissue, is not that easy. And again, that goes back to my first point about this integration. So how do you do this? Well, it's like, uh, again, my analogy would be if you move into a new neighborhood, right? you're a new kid on the block, how do you get to be friendly with your neighbors? Well, you need to have something in common, number one. Uh, you know, a barbecue in the backyard or whatever. Some type of social interactive activity will be necessary. Uh, well, the old tissue, of course, has been doing this, whatever they do, for quite some time. And, of course, part of it is not working too well. That's why you have a problem in the first place. So I think the new tissue, ideally, should also have some therapeutic activity. 
meaning that it can actually reach out and touch someone. And so in the tissue engineering, regenerative medicine context, it will refer to a biological activity that actually invites the host tissue to start interacting with the graft tissue. Again, multiple ways of doing this. It can be uh, something that is basic as from a gene level to a prefabricated, uh, pre-delivered bioactive factor or some type of small molecules, pharmacological agents and what have you that you embed into this new tissue that allow to stimulate the activity of the host tissue. So that's the kind of sort of new horizon we're trying to explore. So just to clarify, at the end of the therapeutic procedure as you envision it, it will all be tissue though. It'll be the original tissue plus this new tissue that fixes the defect, as opposed to tissue plus some artificial substance. That's right, yeah. I mean, the tissue plus artificial substance actually has been working quite well in the orthopedic musculoskeletal field. Total joint replacement is your prime example of that, and it's been very, very uh, effective. Metal and plastic, sometimes ceramics, work very, very well. The problem is it's an inanimate object and has no ability to respond or to instruct. And they also wear out. It can also wear out. But the, the wearing out is more the interface that wears out, not so much the material. I mean, titanium is a pretty tough alloy. They make airplanes out of it. And ultra-high molecular weight polyethylene is also a very durable material. But it's the interface of that supposedly very tough material with the biological tissue that fails at the end, simply because they actually don't particularly like each other. Uh, they, they can coexist, but they're not really good buddies. So if I can go back to joints for a moment, of course there's, there's issues with bone and there's issues with cartilage. Who's more important, the bone or the cartilage? So imagine the, a joint that's falling apart. Well, initially is, uh, is the cartilage, which is the surface layer. Inevitably, as a function of time, the underlying bone or subchondral bone also begins to undergo lesion. So as a result, you have what is called osteochondral defect. So the question then is, who comes first? The cartilage degeneration or some type of abnormal biological activity in the underlying bone that causes the cartilage to fall apart? So this is being investigated quite intensively right now. As you know, osteoporosis is another big curse for individuals or people getting old and so forth and so on. So there are a lot of drugs out there that supposedly can work quite well in retaining bone density. So now it's a perfect opportunity actually to look at those individuals who now have better bone and ask the question, will they have better cartilage? It's just in the beginning, early phase of this type of analysis. Going back to your question, which is more important, the bone or the cartilage in terms of the failing joint? I think it's probably both, although I think in most cases, related to particular trauma and injury and so forth, it's probably the surface cartilage that takes the initial blow. And as a result, it begins to degrade. Now, cartilage is one of those tissues that is unable to repair itself, right? It simply is not possible to repair cartilage. It is, has no blood vessels, had no new cells coming in. In fact, the cartilage that I have in my joints 
Part of it is actually was made when I was a teenager. It's still around. Okay? It doesn't turn over or remodel very actively. Because it's supposed to stay there for a long time, it doesn't make new ones. So when that parkage falls apart, I got nothing else to make up for it. So if you have a piece of cartilage that has been damaged as a result of trauma, that the lesion is going to grow. And ultimately, because of the constant weight-bearing requirement, it falls apart and gets worse and worse and worse. So I think that's the challenge right now. Initially, I think it is probably most likely, for those cases anyway, would be the cartilage. Now, there are genetic forms of joint diseases, and those probably can involve multiple tissues or even something else, the synovium, which is the capsule surrounding the joint. So if I interpret correctly your comments, that while you see optimism in terms of bone tissue engineering, you're not as optimistic in terms of cartilage tissue engineering? Yeah, I think cartilage tissue engineering is the challenge right now. I think bone generally heals quite well. In case in point would be uh, fractures. Generally, fractures, if they're not huge segmental defects, you close it up, you put internal or external fixators, that fracture will heal quite well. Whereas cartilage lesions generally just continue to progress. And so the challenge, obviously, right now is about how to fix cartilage. And as I said before, total joint replacement works very well. And oftentimes, if you look at the individuals who are undergoing total joint replacement, their bone is pretty okay. It's just that there's got nothing on top. And so you're bone on bone and hurts like hell. And that's when you need the, the total joint replacement. They're sacrificing, actually, perfectly good bone, as far as we can tell just because they could not resurface the cartilage. So I think one of the goals that we have is to indeed try to resurface, but do biological resurfacing of the joint itself. And that will eliminate the otherwise very drastic step of total joint replacement. You still require surgical approach, obviously, probably maybe even more fine surgical approach because you're doing resurfacing as opposed to whacking everything out and then sticking plastic and, and metal in. So, Dr. Tuan, if you were to use your expertise and forecast when some of these new and emerging technologies might be available, at least for clinical study, what kind of forecast do you have? Work from my lab and plus a few other labs in the country, I think are at a stage where we are already doing large animal trials. And so far, the results from my own laboratory as well from a couple other laboratories have shown that Within a year or so, the cartilage functions quite well. Now, the obvious challenge here is how do you measure functionality? Osteoarthritis and joint diseases in general, probably the most used criterion is pain. Right? If you have no pain, you're doing okay. If you have pain, you're not doing okay. The rest is just to support that claim. Well, it's a little tough to measure that in animals. You end up having to essentially use more objective, observational criteria, uh, uh, imaging, and so on and so forth, histology and whatnot. I think all indications point to the fact that the material that we're making is indeed working. So when that continue to show positive results, the, the next one obviously is clinical trial. So I'm looking at probably about three to five years where the clinical trials will be full-blown. 
And if those continue to look good, I think they can go to the next step. Uh, so Dr. Tuan, uh, can you give us a little bit of insight into the types of materials that you're using to accomplish these uh, objectives? So the sort of classic paradigm of tissue engineering is the combination of cells, uh, scaffold biomaterials, and the use of enabling conditions uh, or stimuli. So for cells, because we actually don't have any excess chondrocytes or cells of the cartilage to work with, since cartilage doesn't regenerate, so we are therefore using primarily adult stem cells. And these are cells that can be obtained from multiple adult tissues, including bone marrow, muscle, bone, fat, and so on and so forth. So we isolate these cells from the host, meaning that particular individual who is going to need the newly engineered tissue. Because we're primarily interested in humans, so almost all of our work uses adult human stem cells. And so we take these cells and we come up with methods to activate them so that they will become cartilage. Now, the key thing with cartilage and other solid tissues is the fact that they're three-dimensional. So we, therefore, must use some type of delivery material that will allow these cells to actually very quickly give rise to the structure of a tissue. I call this assisted development. It's not exactly the same as normal embryonic development. It's like assisted living versus living. It's pretty okay. You've got pretty much everything that you need. You got three meals and you got some bingo games and so forth and so on. You can go pretty well. So what we do here is to think quite rationally about what type of biomaterial to use. Now, traditionally, a lot of people use some type of polymer that they make in the laboratory, synthesize it, or they use some type of collagen, which is uh, extractable from tissues. But the problem with all of those things is once you've extracted them, they don't have the shape and form of the original tissue anymore. So instead, what we did was that we took a, a good look at the structure of tissues. And it turns out that most of the matrix in tissue is made of very fine fibers in the nanometer scale, or you can call them nanostructured materials or nanomaterials. So what we decided to do is to go that route, and we therefore produce nanostructured materials. They're called nanofibers. And these nanofibers, uh, we started this about, oh, 12 or 15 years ago, and we synthesize and produce these nanofibrous scaffold, which turn out to be very exciting. These materials actually are more than just a scaffold to hold the cells. They actually allow the cells to very efficiently become various cell types, depending on what we want to make, either bone, a cartilage, or even uh, muscle and fat. So we're able to make cartilage quite efficiently. And then embedded into these nanofibers, we put in bioactive growth factors that stimulate the formation of cartilage. So at this point, we then take this material and we put it into a bioreactor, a large incubator, you might call that. And then that allows the tissue to grow quite efficiently into the size that we want. And the size is quite desirable because, as I pointed out earlier, 
osteoarthritis or degenerative joint diseases really begin to hurt when that lesion gets to a certain size. And so we actually want to get to that size. So we're quite successful so far with producing such tissues. So that's the so-called ex vivo approach, meaning we do this outside the body. This out-of-body experience is then put back into the defect. Well, that works, but I think it should be quite apparent that this is quite labor-intensive, right? And therefore, almost uh, by definition, going to be costly. So one of the things that we're currently investigating is to see if we can cut this process down to a very uh, abbreviated but yet still effective approach. And so that would be what I call point-of-care approach. Is it possible to take these cells, put them in a scaffold, together with some very active growth factors, and essentially do this right at the time of surgery without any culturing or tissue maturation process outside the body. We're hopeful that this will work. It's a very innovative approach, and I commend you and your colleagues for uh, pursuing this course of action. Dr. Tuan, you introduced this idea of using a patient's own cells to uh, affect these regeneration procedures you've described to us. I note that these are adult patient-derived cells, and uh, I know you've offered some opinions recently in terms of the effectiveness of these types of cells as opposed to the possibility of using embryonic cells for regenerative therapies. Can you expand on your opinions on that just a little bit? Yeah, I think the stem cell field is such an exciting uh, endeavor uh, these days. Uh, Our options are just incredibly uh, fascinating. There are, of course, the embryonic stem cells derived from an early embryo. There are the adult stem cells that you can harvest from a variety of adult tissues. The major difference there is that adult stem cells tend to be somewhat limited in what they can become, whereas embryonic stem cells are called pluripotent cells, meaning they can become a large number of cell types. But therein also lies another difference, and that is adult stem cells, because of their limited potential, is a little easier to control. If you want to make cell type A, and you find one adult stem cell is very good with that, it can probably give you 70-80% of that cell type. Whereas if you take embryonic stem cell, to make it to become that predominant, it's going to take a little bit more work, simply because it has more potential to become other things. So adult stem cells also offer another advantage, you want to call it that way, is that it's because it can get it from the same patient. So you don't ever have to run into the risk of say, well, I got it from somebody else, and that somebody else may not be identical to myself in terms of the immunotypes and so forth, and so you might end up with some complications later on. On the other hand, obviously, getting the cells from that particular patient means that if that patient has any type of genetic diseases, it will be in those cells as well, unless you find a way to correct them. So life is not perfect, so you take your pick there. However, getting adult stem cells certainly is uh, quite painless uh, right now. It's very straightforward. Uh, you can expand them for quite a bit. They don't grow forever like the embryonic stem cells. So I think there are uh, practical advantages, and that's why right now there are a whole lot more clinical trials uh, using adult stem cells than embryonic stem cells. 
and not to mention the fact that adults themselves uh, carry essentially no ethical or moral dilemma that the embryonics themselves often elicit. So I think in that regard, adult stem cells certainly is a very natural approach to take when we want to regenerate tissues. One more thing I want to point out, and that is, of course, the most recent scientific advancements in stem cell research is the production of so-called induced pluripotent stem cells, or IPS cells, first introduced in late 2006 by Shinya Yamanaka. The procedure basically involves taking adult cells and introducing a number of very key genes that are specific for embryonic stem cells into these cells. And then after some massaging, these cells then assume the properties of embryonic stem cells. Namely, they can become multiple cell types, they grow forever, and so on and so forth. Right now, there are some limitations because they actually also are very tumorigenic. They can give rise to cancer, which is, of course, undesirable. However, the idea of being able to take a patient's own cells and introducing some genes into them or some other methods and turning them into these very potent, powerful, embryonic stem cell-like cells is certainly very, very, very uh, exciting. So in my laboratory, we're also uh, in the process of uh, doing that. We're, in fact, taking adult stem cells, which, as I said before, are very good, however, somewhat limited in what they can do, and they don't live forever. So what we're trying to do is to massage these guys along this particular pathway of making induced pluripotent stem cell, IPS cell, which is actually called reprogramming. We try to reprogram them up to a point where they can assume many of the good qualities of embryonic stem cells, but not the tumorigenicity part. This is what we are trying to do right now. So I think stem cell field is just uh, full of excitement, full of surprises, and full of promises. Yeah, there's certainly some challenges, but many, many opportunities to do some very innovative things. So Dr. Tuan, I'd like to uh, thank you for joining us today and sharing your vision and your accomplishments. We will post on the uh, podcast website a link to Dr. Tuan's website if someone likes to explore more detail his pioneering work. As we close this podcast, I'd like to remind our listeners that we welcome suggestions in terms of topics to cover. I also remind you that we cannot diagnose medical problems via the Internet. You can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. As we conclude this podcast, I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine that sponsors this podcast series. And to our listeners, we look forward to joining you again in two weeks with another interesting interview. Thank you. Thank you.